You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. So Ted Turner, since I was a little boy, has not only been in the news, he loves to be in the news. Of course, you know, at one time he was the owner of the Atlanta Braves. And one of the earliest stories I remember about Ted Turner, it was 1977, and the Braves had lost 16 in a row. If you're a Braves fan, that, that, that's tough. And, and so he went to the manager, Dave Bristol, and he says, I'm giving you a 10-day vacation. And he became the manager of the Braves for one day until the commissioner, Bowie Coon, said, no, you can't do that. In 1981, he fired Bobby Cox as manager. A journalist asked him, what kind of manager are you looking for? He said, someone like Bobby Cox. That was Ted Turner. Well, recently he's been in the news for a couple of other reasons. First of all, he's dying of a brain disease, and we need to pray for him. As an image bearer, we need to pray for Ted Turner. Secondly, he's lamenting the direction of CNN, the the news channel that he founded in 1980. But there's another reason he has been in the news, perhaps more than any other reason, through the years. And it's his hatred of Christianity. Ted Turner has famously said more than once, Christianity is for losers. Christians are losers. In fact, he is known to have revised the Ten Commandments as if he has the authority to do that. He revised the Ten Commandments in his own mind to what he calls the 11 voluntary initiatives. He tossed out the commandments that he considers outdated like the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Here's what he says. People have had a lot of fun breaking that one. I know I did. And yet, as he told Tom Brokaw just a few years ago, I think God will let me in heaven. He may not let me on the 50-yard line, but he's going to let me into heaven. And here was his reasoning. I give a lot of money to those less fortunate than myself. And that's one of the tenets of all religions. He also said in that interview that he prays for his friends when they get sick, even though he has been accused of being an agnostic. Tom Brokow, picking up on that, said, to whom do you pray? And he said, whoever's listening. That's Ted Turner. Well, USA Today ran a piece a while back, where he says, and this is a quote, almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. Well, this, of of course, is diametrically opposed to what we saw Jesus said last week in John 14, 6. You can look with me there. In verse 6 of John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, 
and the life. No one, that is no one, comes to the Father except through me. And so Ted Turner is contradicting the very words of the agent of creation and the agent of new creation, the Lord King Jesus. But it is consistent, that is, Ted Turner's sentiments are consistent with fallen human nature because we will either trust in the one and true Savior, Jesus Christ, or ultimately we will find our security in self-salvation. There's only two alternatives. Of course, self-salvation is no comfort for the troubled heart. And that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is seeking to comfort the troubled hearts of his, of his 11 disciples. Judas has now left to betray him. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's really the caption for the rest of this section. And so he is comforting them. And, and to do that, he is preparing his disciples for his soon approaching departure where he will leave, he'll be arrested, he'll be, he'll be crucified, he will be raised from the grave, and then in time he will ascend to the right hand of the Father. So he's preparing them for that. Now, Every Christian in history would rightly love to have been in the shoes of these disciples during Jesus' earthly ministry. All of us would have loved to have been there, to have seen his works, to hear his words, to behold the glory of God in the person of this Son of God. What Jesus is saying, though, is that it's actually a superior situation for him to go to the Father than for you to be in his presence before his glorification. As hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around that, that's what he is saying. It is a superior situation that he go away. We saw a couple reasons why last week. First reason we saw is he's going to prepare a better place. The second reason is he is... He is going to prepare to make a way for that better place through his cross and his resurrection and his ascension. Today we see two more reasons for why it's better that Jesus go away and depart and to be with the Father. Uh, the third reason, the first reason today, is that he, it's better that he goes away so that he can truly be a firsthand revelation of who God really is. In fact, we see that at the very beginning of this passage. At an infinite cost, Jesus is going to give a firsthand revelation of God. In other words, it takes a cross for us to behold all that God is for us. It takes a cross. It takes a resurrection. It takes an ascension, and it takes the rule of Christ at the right hand of the Father by the gift of the Spirit and His Word. But look with me in verse 7. Coming off the heels of verse 6, that exclusive statement, 
No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him, or from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So we saw that exclusive claim in verse 6. They knew Jesus, of course. They had been with him for three years. They knew him well enough to, to turn from their occupations and to follow him. And yet their poor understanding of the Father that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John actually showed they had an inadequate understanding of the Lord Jesus. But the events that were going to unfold over the next few hours and days, we're going to change that for these disciples. Now, it's interesting that just hours before the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about the unity that he has with the Father. Now, most pulpits today, they would see that as not relevant for their people. They may give them principles for getting out of debt, and there's a place for that. But Jesus, just hours before the cross, is teaching them something that many preachers would feel is not necessarily relevant for their people. He is teaching about the unity of the Father and the Son, and the Son with the Father. And that tells us this is very important. It also tells me if this isn't interesting to me, I need to cry out to the Holy Spirit to enlighten my eyes because there's so many things Jesus could have been saying at this point right before the cross and he's speaking here about the fact that he is one with the Father. Here's what's at stake. Nothing less than Jesus' ability to give us a firsthand revelation of the Father. What's at stake is our salvation. But at this point, it's clear that the 11 have yet to grasp what Jesus has been teasing them for three years. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Because we are slow to understand as well. Look with me in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It appears that Philip wants a theophany. You say, what, what's a theophany? It's a physical manifestation of God. You see it in the Old Testament. As God is preparing us for the incarnation, he will physically manifest himself to his choice servants. So for instance, the burning bush with Moses, that was a theophany. Or in Isaiah 6, where God reveals himself physically in some way to Isaiah. This appears to be what Philip is asking for. And what we're going to see Jesus do here is respond with a kind of rebuke to Philip. In other words, if God has revealed himself fully in the Son of God, and you don't find that sufficient, then you're certainly not going to be satisfied with any lesser manifestation of God. That's why Jesus rebukes him here in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me 
Now, this is remarkable here. Has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, if you'll remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, and the, the crowds are following him because they, they've, they've heard about and some of them have seen some of the sign miracles, and they're hungry. And in John chapter 6, Jesus asked the disciples, Philip being one of those, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then it says, he said this to test them. He was testing his disciples. And there in John 6, Philip speaks up. Here's what Philip said, the very one who's asking this question. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough. 200 days labor would not be enough. There were 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. He said, if we had unimaginable money here, we, we, it wouldn't be enough to, to feed these, this crowd. But then Jesus took two fish and five loaves. He multiplied them, and he fed the 5,000 men and the, the innumerable women and children. And when he was done, there were 12 baskets left over. 12 is not arbitrary. He gave one to each of those skeptical disciples. That was the purpose of the 12 baskets. And so Philip had seen that. He had already seen that the father who had provided manna for Israel in the desert had revealed himself likewise in the Son of God. Philip failed to understand that the answer to the bread problem was Jesus, the bread of life. And here he is, under, he is failing to understand that the answer to the see the Father problem is also Jesus. And that's what Jesus is going after here. To the extent that the disciples have yet not grasped that in Jesus, God has made himself known. They do not sufficiently know either the Father or the Son. Verse 10. He says, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, I'll tell you, this is high doctrine right here. This is high theology. And of all the things he could have been saying before the cross, he's talking about this. There's a fancy term, perichoresis. You don't have to remember that term, but that, that's what this means, mutual indwelling. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father fully, and yet there is one God, distinct persons. Jesus is speaking about the Trinity. He doesn't mention the Spirit here, but he will begin discussing the Spirit in verse 15. And so it's remarkable what he's saying here. Now, the first time he spoke about the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son was all the way back in chapter 10, verse 38. Back in chapter 10, verse 38, he said, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. In other words, the works that Jesus was doing 
were all reflections of what God had done for all of history. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What this tells us is that the Father and the Son are not the same person. One of the earliest heresies in church history, and it's common today, is this notion that the Father becomes the Son who then becomes the Spirit. Well, the math adds up when you say that. The problem is you go to hell for saying that because it's a heresy. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God and yet three manifest persons. And so all three persons, again, he's not mentioning the Holy Spirit here, but he will in verse 15, they mutually indwell one another. They are distinguishable, but they're inseparable. They're inseparable. As a result, because the Father dwells in the Son and the Son dwells in the Father, when Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. When Jesus acts, the Father acts. That's what he's teaching these disciples. So let's get practical. If you've ever wondered if God is good, if the Father is good, you look to Jesus. Look at Jesus feeding the hungry with the fishes and the loaves. And it drives home to us, the Father indeed is good. If you've ever wondered if God is bigger than your problems, you look to Jesus who rebukes the wind and the waves as the disciples are in the midst of a, of a storm. And you see that, yes, God is bigger than our problems. If you've ever wondered if God is really merciful, if he's really loving, if he's really forgiving, you look to Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for us, and crying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the disciples, nor us, need a theophany. We have Christ incarnate the Son of God. Now, we recognize there is a mystery to the Trinity. It's been said, if you try to explain the Trinity, you lose your head. And if you explain it away, you lose your soul, right? So there is a mystery to the Trinity. But that should not surprise us. He is an infinite being. If there wasn't a mystery to an infinite being, then our theology is too low. But just because it's a mystery does not mean it's irrational. What is beyond reason does not mean it's necessarily contradictory. The Trinity is not irrational. It's supra-rational. And as a result of this relationship that the Father is doing... Um, his works are displayed even in Jesus' words. Indeed, in this first part of this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples and us by extension that because he's going away and to die for us and to be raised for us, he is giving us a revelation of who God is. 
And it requires that. The second thing we see in this passage, at an infinite cost, Jesus is going away to ensure greater works for his disciples. Look with me in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you. Again, uh, this phrase, truly, truly, amen, amen, that's the original language, amen, amen. You can say amen, amen. We say amen generally after we've said something. He says before. He's the son of God. He can do that. 25 times in the Gospel of John, he does this. And it, it, it's intended to get you to sit up on the edge of your seat, to wake up. Because what he's saying here is really important. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And what he's about to say is, is mind-boggling, to be perfectly frank. But the reason it's mind-boggling is our view of God in Christ is too low. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Notice, because I'm going to the Father. It's better that I go away than stay with you so that you can do these greater works. Now, this is a remarkable statement. And let me just say, it's as true a statement as it is remarkable. But let's be clear. Greater cannot mean more spectacular. I mean, at this point, he has performed seven sign miracles. He turned the water into wine. He, he healed the centurion's son who was at the point of death. He healed this paralytic who had been a paralytic for 38 years. He had fed fifteen to 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves. He had walked on water, literally walked on water. He had healed the man born blind. And most remarkably, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so when he says greater works here, he cannot mean more spectacular. Just consider the seven miracles. It's nonsensical to say that any of the disciples' miracles were more spectacular than those. Even as you read the book of Acts and you see the miracles that these men were entrusted to perform. None of them are any greater than the seven sign miracles we see in John, never mind the, the miracles you see in the other Gospels. So what is he saying here? Well, to help us understand this, this is the Reformation principle, Scripture, interpreting Scripture. Back in John, or Luke chapter 10, we have the first time the, the disciples and even others, there's 72 who go out, are commissioned to go out on their own to do mission for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom. And in Luke 10, 17, it says they came back with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. His response was, Kind of a killjoy. <laughs> Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this 
but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so there it is clear the disciples were already performing remarkable miracles, miraculous works. And Jesus responds that the works that are greater than these miracles are the works pertaining to conversion, to eternal life, spiritual salvation. And so Jesus is saying here that the greater works would not be more spectacular than his, but they would be greater in extent. So for instance, these greater works would be greater revelationally. What do I mean by that? Prior to the cross, remember he's preparing them that he's leaving to go to the cross. Prior to the cross and prior to the resurrection, God's people did not have a full understanding of the gospel. They had the gospel. They've had the gospel since Genesis 3.15. But it was in seed form. And this progressive revelation is kind of like blowing air in a balloon. As it unfolds, it's like blowing and the balloon begins to take shape. And it had taken a whole lot of shape by the time Jesus comes on the scene. But it would require the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit for them to fully grasp the gospel. And so this greater work would come because it's greater revelation. We have a fuller, a greater comprehensive understanding of the gospel because he's going away. Secondly, greater geographically. Jesus' public ministry was never outside of the nation of Israel. You ever thought about that? That land, he never left that land when he was a little baby, he was taken to Egypt, but I'm talking about his public ministry. Scholars say that he ministered within a 100-mile radius. That's as far as Jesus went. But his disciples would take that gospel to the ends of the earth. So it's greater geographically. Third, greater ethnically. Jesus came... And certainly had the nations in mind. He's the seed of Abraham. But he came first and foremost for the Jews. But now his people are made up of every tribe and tongue. Right? Praise God for that. Greater numerically. By the time Jesus ascends and you open up the book of Acts, there's only 100 followers. A hundred disciples. Now, the Acts didn't say those are the only disciples, but there weren't a whole lot more than that. There were 120 in a room together waiting for the gift of the Spirit. Today, Lifeway Research tells us that there are 300, this was 2020, 386 million evangelicals evangelicals, 386 million. And by the way, 77% of those are in the southern hemisphere. So lest we think that the gospel is a, a Western or American religion, that's wrong-headed. 77% of evangelicals are south of us in the southern hemisphere. Greater numerically and also greater spiritually. 
it was good that He would go away because He would send the Spirit. And here's what the Spirit would do. He would unite every believer to Christ Himself where we'd receive His righteousness imputed to us, His righteousness imparted to us. His life would now be lived through us by the Spirit greater spiritually. But who does this promise pertain to? And that, the answer to that, is found in the condition that he gives. He gives a condition for these greater works. Notice with me in verse 12. He says, whoever believes in me. So that can't just be the disciples. This is a promise to every person who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a, prom it's not a promise to the whole world. It's a promise to every person in the world who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, because I'm going away, because I am going to the Father, you will be able to do these greater works because my authority and my power, my sovereignty will be displayed through you by my Spirit. It's a glorious promise. Remember, he's comforting troubled hearts. The second condition, though, Brings us to the last part of this passage, 13 and 14. The condition of believing in Jesus, but the second condition is prayer. Prayer. One of my fears is that too often in the Western church, we have been prayerless. Look at the condition here, verse 13. And this is the context. He's talking about these greater works. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. This is not some carte blanche blank check that he's promising. It's in the context of kingdom work, doing the greater works, okay? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Of course, this... This verse, these two verses have been used, abused by what is known as the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Really, this movement began to take shape in 1927. Most of us know Ken Hagen as the founder of the movement, but there was someone who influenced him. In fact, a book came out in the 80s that showed definitively that Hagen had plagiarized this man word for word. The man's name was E.W. Kenyon. And he wrote a book called The Wonderful Name of Jesus. And here's what he taught. The atonement of Jesus transfers legal authority to every believer. And so that the name of Jesus has legal significance to everyone who uses his name. You use his name, asking becomes a form of demanding so that you can claim your spiritual rights. And this really took off after World War II, all right? It, numbers were drawn to this. In fact, many even in other places of the world were drawn to this, but this is an American heresy. Okay, you could even say an American cult. 
In fact, it, it raised the expectations that one of the benefits of faith is creature comforts and health, wealth, prosperity. I saw Jesse DePlantis say one night on television, I don't know why I was watching him, but he had a, it was a man or a woman, I can't remember which, in a wheelchair. And he pointed at the, the person in the wheelchair and says, the only difference between me and you is I have enough faith to walk and you don't. That is an abuse of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not giving us a formula that guarantees us health, wealth, and prosperity. If that's the case, then Paul failed miserably when he prayed three times to have the, the thorn in the flesh removed and God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So what is Jesus doing here? What does he mean here? Well, the key, again, is in the phrase, in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, that is the condition. Now, again, that is not some magical formula. So what does Jesus mean? Well, first and foremost, it means that when you come to the Father, you're coming on the merits of Jesus and Jesus alone. You don't deserve to be in his presence. You don't deserve anything from him, in fact. You're coming in the name, the person, the finished work of Jesus alone. R.A. Torrey illustrated this uh, back at one of his conferences. He, he was about to preach and a person gave him a, a note. He read it quickly. And he decided to read the note in the pulpit. And the note said this, Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. And I've tried to be a consistent one all the time. I've been superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years. And an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayers. Before he read that, and then he responded. This man thinks that because he's been a consistent church member, a faithful Sunday school superintendent, and an elder in the church, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He's really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God. And we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims alone and through the finished work of Jesus. But that's not all that Jesus says here. Note as well, we come on the merits of Jesus alone, but we come, now this is a hard part, on the motives of God's glory in Jesus alone. Again, notice, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father, this is key, may be glorified in the Son. And so we present our desires, our concerns to God, 
but we do so while yielding our priorities to Jesus' priorities. We come to him desiring his glory in the answer of our prayers more than our temporal benefit. That means that we should never expect worldly or selfish prayers to be covered by this promise. When we treat prayer like a genie in the bottle, we are limiting God, really. We're limiting God by the wisdom, our fallen wisdom of our wishes. And remember, he's, he's encouraging troubled hearts. That's not very encouraging to a troubled heart. But Jesus, is in, he's engaging troubled hearts. But he's also, here's what else he's doing as we come to a close. He's discipling them in the process, all right? And so let's, let's put this in some kind of specific kind of application. The immature might pray, Lord, give me what I want. I want that raise. I want that job. I want that spouse. I want that child. I, I want that house. The mature disciple prays, Lord, conform me to what you want. All right? The immature may pray for the fulfillment of their desires. The mature disciples pray for the fulfillment of Jesus' purposes. The immature pray only for the things they can see. The mature disciple prays that Jesus might be seen. All right? Now, that's high, and we're going to talk about how to get there in just a second. The immature pray, my will be done, Lord. The mature disciple prays, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven for your glory in the name of the Son. The fact is, outside of the, the clear promises of God in Scripture and the direct Texts that speak to God's will for us, like this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. We don't know the hidden will of God. We don't. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord God. The things revealed belong to us. And because of that, we don't know what's best in many situations. So think about this. If we had been one of Joseph's friends when his brothers arrested him or, 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 or stole him and kidnapped him and, and sold him to the passing Ishmaelites, here's what we'd have prayed. Lord, deliver Joseph from his brothers without recognizing that God was even using their sin to bring about his good purposes. It would be through Joseph being sold as a slave into to Egypt that would bring salvation to Israel and the nations. If we had been Lazarus's friend, we'd have said, Lord, you can't let him die without recognizing that through his death, the church would be served for 2,000 years as we see that ultimate sign miracle from Jesus about what he was going to do through his own resurrection from the grave. If we had been at the foot of the cross we would have asked God 
Send your angels and deliver Jesus without recognizing that it would be through that cross that God would redeem the world. John here, and rather Jesus through the pen of John, is impressing upon the disciples just hours before the cross the glories of the triune God. And the reality that the Father's in the Son, the Son is in the, the Father, and, and they're on the same page. There's an inseparable operation here. And then He's going away, all right? And it's good that He goes away so that ultimately He might reclaim a sin-broken world. And as we meditate on, as we reflect on, as we sang this morning, as we behold this God, here's what happens. He progressively changes our priorities, our cravings, our motivations, and even our ambitions. And then we are primed. We are primed to see the authority of Christ come to bear through our lives and our ministries as we do the works that God has prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10. May we behold him this morning. But I also realize as Adam and the musicians come forward that not everyone knows him in a saving way. It is good that he goes away. That's what he's telling the disciples so that sinners like you and me might be saved. And that's why he goes away. And so whatever sin is represented in this room was nailed to the cross. Every sin, for everyone who would trust in him, it was nailed to the cross. And all you have to do is bring your sin to the cross, turn from it to Jesus. And the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. Won't you respond to that gospel plea this morning as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.